This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gurno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Ayako Yoshimura, Japanese studies librarian at the University of Chicago Library. Dr. Yoshimura is the author of A Glimpse of Meiji Kimono Fashion in the Meiji at 150 digital teaching resource, as well as To Believe and Not to Believe a native ethnography of Kanashibari in Japan, published in the Journal of American Folklore in 2015. Dr. Yoshimura, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. In your research, you've written a lot on material culture, but especially from the kind of folklore studies perspective. And could you give us an idea of folklore studies and what are the, some of the questions that you're looking at in your own research? Okay, folklore. I think people, when they hear folklore, they think it's about folk tales, like stories and fairy tales. And that's what we study. But we actually studied human expressive behavior. So we are interested in the question that we always have is why people do what they do. So if it's stories, why did people tell stories that they did in the past and what we can study from them, what people thought and why people did what they did. If it's about food, you can study why people cook particular foods and then why they ate particular foods at particular time. That's the same for any other material culture like uh, clothing, like dress and identity, or crafts and arts. Why people want to make Easter eggs, for example, or quilts. And it can be cultural, could be personal, and then we explore what what those material items express the values that they have or what kind of persons they are and so on and so forth. And then that goes with this like uh, rituals, the like for example the New Year's festival, why do Japanese people do things this way and then Chinese people do it differently. We explore why people do what they do and then we focus on answering the question by studying everyday culture practices. And speaking of food and dress, you've written especially about kimono and kimono designs. And in fact, for our Meiji at 150 digital teaching resource, you wrote an article for us about how some of these kimono designs are changing during the Meiji period. So often we think of kimono as Japanese dress, but it's actually more complicated than that. Right. So the Meiji Moyo no Hon, for which I wrote, the article for the project, that was slightly different because for formal wear, like Tomesode, you don't see that much change in the motifs, but how the motifs are painted will be different, I think. So you have several kimonos with cray motifs, and you like cranes on your <laughs> formal kimonos, and in what, in what design do you want them? And then that reflect your taste, the wearer's taste. So it was very interesting that the book contains several different kinds of designs using the same kind of motifs. It's a good example, too, of how from the Western perspective, the kimono is kind of flattened out 
into just this symbolic thing where, in fact, in Japan, there's many different types of kimono. Could you talk about some of those differences in kimono styles and designs? Yes, there are many different kinds, especially if you take into account like work clothes. So there are formal ones and semi-formal ones and casual ones, but casual ones for outing and casual ones for wearing at home. And then yukata, which can function as pajamas or as summer clothes, summer summertime kimono. And it depends on what textile, what kind of weaving techniques were used to produce the textile, and what kind of patterns were used, and the placement of patterns on kimonos. And that's how you can tell what kind of kimonos they are and also what kind of obi the belt what kind of obi you match and that also changes the formality whether you want to make it really formal or not that formal there are different ways to compose an outfit by matching different things and also um, the Meiji period this is when it was decided that Tome Sode should be considered the most formal. Prior to that, they didn't really have that much distinction because what to wear was defined by your class, social class, rather than the occasion. And Meiji was several decades, so we don't know at what point during the Meiji period it was decided that Tome Sode was the most formal. So you were talking about weddings and funerals as moments when people might wear kimono. But what is the position of kimono in Japanese life today? When might a Japanese person today wear a kimono? You can wear kimono to a tea ceremony. Some people wear kimonos to kabuki theater um, or no play. And I think some people wear kimonos just for get-together with other kimono wearers. And yukata is very popular to wear to firework events during the summer. I think now the kimono is optional, even though it's still considered the national garment. So you don't need to wear... I think a person can live his or her life, entire life, without ever wearing kimono because it's that detached from our everyday culture. It's optional. You you don't need to wear kimonos to funerals if you choose not to, even for your kin's funeral. And then the same for marriage. If you don't want to, you don't have to, unless your relatives pressure you to wear them. So it's, it's, it's strange. It's the kimono is still very symbolic of Japanese culture, yet there are many people who never won kimono or people don't know how to wear them. Yet this status of the kimono as a Japanese symbol, one of the symbols, is very strong. So that's another thing I was trying to explore, like what is the attraction of kimonos aside from just being beautiful to look at. So whenever people do statistics on like like interest in kimono, Many, many, many people, the majority of women are interested in kimonos, but 
they can't wear them because they don't know how to wear them. They don't know how to start wearing them or where to go to shop for kimonos. It's a very, very strange phenomena where, uh, you know, it's not something that everybody does, yet it's still symbolic. You're certainly right. It is the this kind of symbolic clothing of, of Japan, and, and that's certainly the way that it's understood in the West. So how did the kimono become the symbolic clothing of Japan? I, I don't know if this has to do with the interest from the West. So when the Edo period ended and Japan opened its ports for trading, international trading, Many people from the Western countries came, and then I think kimono was definitely one of the artifacts that they wanted to collect. So many kimono collections that exist overseas today, I think they were the results of Western collectors buying kimonos during the Meiji period. And speaking of the Westerners coming during the Meiji period, there's a there's a significant event when the Empress wears the, a Western-style dress for the first time, and this happens in the later 1880s. And as a result of her wearing this, this kind of starts this trend at court where all the court ladies start wearing Western dresses as well, and they stop wearing kimono. But the Western guests think this is the worst thing ever because they say, oh, you know, it's terrible that these Japanese women are now wearing Western style clothing and not wearing these beautiful kimono anymore. Right. And then I think I think it's interesting because that's when Japan was trying to prove to the Western powers that they know how to behave like Westerners or something like that. That was their attempt at portraying themselves as a powerful nation. And then the clothing definitely took a great part in that. But then it's interesting that women were criticized for imitating Westerners when that didn't happen to men. So they're the gender expectations. One of the times when people do wear kimono these days is at these coming out parties when they turn 20. You go to your celebration for your 20th birthday at the local temple. Of course, you'll wear a nice kimono then. You know, for kids at the time, wearing the kimono to go to the temple is this moment when, you know, and some people, you know, really try to show off, right? You wear a really nice kimono, your fancy design. And this is for men and women, right? Right. So Seijin Shiki is the ceremony for like coming of age ceremony for people turning 20. And then the industry, there's a huge industry in this uh, seijinshiki kimonos, both for men and women, but mostly for women. So they, they need to select an outfit that they want to rent some months in advance. And you need to make an appointment for hairdo as early as the day before. And then if you have to have your hair done the day before, then you need to sleep, basically uh, sitting on a couch or something like that. And then you go to a dealer four in the morning to have the kimono put on for you and then wait until like 9 a.m. 
for the ceremony to start somewhere. <laughs> so it's it's a big it's a big industry. It's still very popular, and it's a very exciting occasion for many young women to wear kimonos, formal kimonos. And then they're heavy. You you that's the kind of kimono that you need other people's help because the obi will be very elaborate, and that's something that you cannot do by yourself. Then you, you go show. Basically, you have to do the tour of your relatives, tour around the neighborhood to show everybody. But then you go to the temple, and how does it work? It's everybody in the same temple district goes to the the temple on the same day. I think it depends on what what kind of relationship you have with your temples in your neighborhood. Some parents prefer that their daughters go to the temples that they belong to. Some people prefer going to a bigger temples where everybody else will be. So, so I think it, I think it depends on what kind of relationship you have locally. And it's also a moment when when people try to select kimono that are flashy in some in some way, right? Yes. So there are many different kinds, like blue ones and red and pink and green and yellow. And some people prefer flashy ones with lots of different kinds of flowers. And some people might go for black and match with red obi or something like that. So they can look more like potentially courtesans in the past. And then I don't know if you've ever seen, but there are women who wear kimonos with their shoulders showing. And that, I thought that only happens in magazines, but I saw them on TV being interviewed for Sejinshiki, and I was very shocked. (laughs) (laughs) In your own research, you've talked about the kind of performative aspect of wearing kimono as well, and, and how there's the relationship between the kimono as clothing and personal identity even. Right. So for my dissertation, I wanted to study why people today are still attracted to wearing kimonos even though they are cumbersome and they're heavy and most people stopped wearing kimonos many decades ago but in the late 1990s there was a resurgence of kimono fashions in Tokyo area I think and I was wondering why and then at the same time I was I inherited my grandmother's kimono when I was visiting my parents right before I started my PhD program, and that made me interested in wearing kimonos. And as a folklorist, I was interested in what people are trying to do, how how are they expressing themselves by wearing kimonos. But then I was thinking that I'm not able to answer the question of why I want to wear kimonos myself either. So rather than talking to other people, I decided to question myself. And at the time I was still learning how to put on a kimono because I didn't I didn't grow up wearing kimonos and I didn't know how to put them on myself. And in that adventure of me exploring how to wear a kimono, how to compose an outfit in a way that bespeak my personhood and my taste. It was a journey for me, a personal journey. But also, as a folklorist, I was interested in what what I wanted to express through mastering the art of kimono wearing. So I focused on that. So when I was looking at Moyo no Hon, 
from the Meiji period. Perhaps I was looking at it as a folklorist who wears kimonos and Perhaps an art historian would write about the book in a different way, but I was interested in imagining what kind of person would pick this Tomeso de over other ones. And I was just thinking about the motifs from a wearer's perspective. In the photograph of you that we used on our Meiji at 150 website, it looks like you're wearing a kimono. So since you've done so much research on kimono, how often do you wear a kimono? Well, it depends. So now I, I joined, when I moved to Chicago, I was visited by someone who works at Consulate General of Japan Chicago office. And she was one of the founders of a kimono wearing club in Chicago, and it's called Wafu Club. And she invited me to their get-together once, maybe it was two years ago. And I wore kimono to that event, and I was very nervous because we have different kinds of kimono wearers, and I only had casual kimonos, and I didn't have white tabby, which is a socks, that you're supposed to wear for formal wear, but I only had casual wears and I didn't like tabby socks. I have tabby socks, meaning like actual socks. So I was very nervous going to that event, but they were very welcoming. And then it was a group of kimono wearers who just wanted to wear kimonos just because they wanted to. (laughs) So it was exactly the kind of people that I wanted to wear kimonos with and get together. So we tried to meet once a month but I guess it turned out to be very difficult so maybe every few months. you've also done research on Asian American grocery stores and I should say up here in Canada one of the most popular TV shows is a TV show called Kim's Convenience which is about a I think it's a Korean Canadian family that is running a grocery store so I'm curious you know what have you looked at in your research and what have you found about these Asian American grocery stores yes so there's an Asian American grocery store mom and pop store in Madison, Wisconsin that I frequented and the place was very interesting because it was owned by a Japanese American woman with her Taiwanese husband and it's a converted house so it's, the, the store itself is in the size of a house and but it's packed, it's packed with all kinds of Japanese and Chinese groceries including produce And behind the counter, the owners had a lot of figurines and crystals and all kinds of things. And then then one time I was asking them, what are those things that you have behind the counters? And they were telling me those are all gifts from their customers. And then I started to walk around and look, look around the stores. And this store was decorated 
with a lot of different things in a way that I didn't see in other ethnic grocery stores. And then, then I was thinking that the material culture of the store, the things inside the store, include not only things that they sell, but also decorative items that bespeak the kind of relationship that the owners fostered with their customers. So there are kairu frog figurines, and in Japanese culture, kairu mean returns. And the customers will give kairu figurine when they leave Madison to basically kind of um, tell them that I will return someday. I might, I might return someday or something like that. So it was a very interesting place, so, social hub for Japanese Americans, Japanese war brides, Japanese students, international students from Japan, and expats, business people who are stationed in the area, and Americans who liked Japanese food. So it was, and so I thought the place was a very interesting social and cultural hub for different kinds of people, and I wanted to understand why people come to this particular ethnic grocery store, and I wanted to study the culture, the charm and attraction that the store had. And if the the Korean American grocery store in the show, I'm 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 guessing that it it there will be a very interesting people coming and going and probably yeah, dramas <laughs> and. That's pretty much the premise for the for the show. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's a very good good. Um, in my encyclopedia article, I I explained how how interesting studying an ethnic grocery store is, because you will see like habit habits of um, specific ethnic groups that you may not recognize, and of course food food will be very interesting. But what people are wearing. And how people are speaking English, so so I I love going to ethnic grocery stores, uh, not not just Japanese one, but other grocery stores just to see if I if I notice anything. The Meiji at One Fifty podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.